Well, good morning. Now, look, if you haven't been to church for a while, or maybe this is the first time you've come to church, gee, you picked a terrible day to come. <laughs> we are looking at one of the most controversial, and on the face of it, gobs making mind-boggling texts in the New Testament. And um, as you probably have already seen, and um, hopefully those of you who... Um, uh, read the newsletter, managed to pick out the um, printout that I put in there with the different translations of the text we're looking at today, which is First Timothy 2. Uh, especially looking in at um, verses 8 to 15. Now, we've read out the text, we've seen and reacted to it, so now we just want to go through it slowly. And what we want to do is, remember last time, we talked about the idea that when we're going through a text, we want to have a couple of principles in mind, one of which is that we read something, a difficult text, in the light of everything else that's going on in the same text. So we're thinking about what else is happening in First Timothy. The writer, as we're taking it, we're going to say that it's Paul. Some people think it's not Paul. I'm going to say it's Paul. We want to see what else Paul has written. We want to see what else Paul has practised. We want to see what else the New Testament talks about Paul and his practice, that is the book of Acts. And we want to think about all of those things, not just zeroing on a couple of words. Imagine that we, as 21st century Westerners, understand with no study, with no um, patience, with no um, depth of insight, just can know a difficult text off the top of our heads, do the old hot take. So I want to take us through slowly what's going on in this letter. Um, not the whole letter, but background. Think about that. And then we've got to think about as well, as um, said before, how has um, tradition also affected us, for good and for ill? Tradition is both the ongoing discussion and conversation and argument about what we read in scripture, and we benefit from the wisdom of people who have gone before us. We benefit from the wisdom that comes from scholarship. Because I tell you, um, this is one of the hardest texts I've ever had to grapple with. I don't mean just in terms of, I didn't like what this particular translation said, but actually, like, stepping behind, looking at the, at the Greek, looking at trying to work out some of the background to this, really hard. So, we want to be guided by tradition, but we also want to be free to actually critique it in light of how we're understanding scripture. And we want to have a good sense of a good argument. Okay, It's one thing just to say, well, the Bible says, and, uh, and not put any thought into it. Okay, So the very first thing I want to say as we're looking at this is that we're looking at what Paul says to Timothy about a situation in Ephesus with a variety of instructions and at the tail end of that we ask, how does that apply to us or to other churches in history and now? It's too easy just to jump and sort of say, whenever Paul talks, God is talking. When Paul says, I can't remember how many people he baptised or whether he baptised anyone in Corinth, that's not God talking, okay? So we just need to 
have a sense of stepping back for a bit and saying, okay, how is God speaking through this text where Paul is talking to Timothy about a situation in Ephesus in the first century? And then to ask, Lord, what do you have to say to us through this text? But not jump straight to, I read these words, this applies in the way that has popped into my head to us now. Okay, so what do we need to look at here? First thing is, the co- oh, that's very tiny, isn't it? Sorry about that. The context in the letter. That's hurting my eyes if you're trying to read it. Okay, so the very first thing that we actually see is what? Is that we need to understand the situation in Ephesus. What's going on? Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. He tells him in verse 3, Remain in Ephesus and so that you may instruct certain people this is regarding false teaching. Okay, let's see if we can just jump straight to that. I urged you... Um, I'm going to read it from there. I urged you when I went to message, stay in Ephesus that you may command certain persons not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Who are these people? They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about. Oh, gee, I mean, here's a text that's applicable today right now. People who don't know what they're talking about or what they confidently affirm. You don't need to know what you're talking about to sound very confident and certain about your, um, about your beliefs, as we can see here. Um, humility. Conversation. Listening to those who have studied before. Um, all good advice, I think, in light of this. Okay, so... Situated in Ephesus, false teaching. That is the background of everything that's going on here. This is not Paul writing a kind of a, a uh, what do you say, sitting back and saying, getting on a bit, time to write my manifesto of what the church should look like. Must remember to put in stuff about women not teaching, even though they've been doing it before. Um, okay, so the whole context, false teaching, an emergency situation, a problem in Ephesus. As you make your way through Timothy, you'll find things like um, there are false teachers who are preying on certain women in Ephesus, some of the richer women, perhaps to gain influence in the congregation and spreading different kinds of false teaching. This is the main thing that's going on here. And so everything that Paul says should be thought of in light of this one verse 3. Okay? It's not to say that there's nothing to learn from this. It's not to say that there aren't things that might apply more widely. But let's make our way through and see what that would be and how that works. Okay. One of the outcomes of this as we look at the text is that, as you might imagine, the midst of a church that is uh, in the middle of controversy and strange things are being said, and certain behaviours are happening in view of everybody else, Paul here is quite concerned about 
maintain, while we're sorting this out, maintaining the reputation of the Christian congregation in Ephesus. Okay. Um, a lot of people have thought, oh, Paul didn't write this. This is so conservative, and Paul is a radical. And it's like, you know, Galatians three twenty eight, neither slaves or masters, or you know, free, or there's you know, male or female, and Jew or Greek, etc. That's the radical message of the gospel, which it is. And so when you get to here with Paul, it's like, oh, such a conservative, you know, be respectable and you know, don't you know, don't upset the outsiders, kind of thing. Be quiet um, there's a reason for that the reason is that the church is in the midst of scandal and false teaching and it needs to sort itself out and one of the central ideas here is this idea of quietness so when you look at um, chapter 2 verse 3 we see that um, Paul says about praying on behalf of kings, all those in authority, in order that a tranquil and quiet life is what we can live in all godliness and dignity. It's good and acceptable for God our Saviour. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But this idea of a quiet life is not, let me just say, a silent life. And the reason I brought that up not surprisingly, it's the very same words being used in First Timothy 2 with regard to women. Okay, It's not silence unless we're supposed to live a tranquil and silent life, which has often been, in my view, a problem with spreading the gospel. Dynamics, speaking with no sound. But quietness, what does that mean? Okay, so just bear that in mind as we, as we go through as well. Okay, the next thing we have to think about is not, again, don't just like pick a set of words and go, oh, well, this is the way that it is. Uh, women must be silent. Women cannot teach. When we see the apostolic example of Paul's own co-workers preaching, teaching, working alongside Paul. So either... Paul has changed his mind late in life or, more likely, he's addressing a particular situation. So I'm all for seeing the Bible as coherent and not contradictory. I'm also more likely to think if I have a bunch of texts that affirm one thing and one text which suggests something else, I'm going to have a closer look at that one text to see whether it overrides everything else. And usually I'll say, no, it doesn't. The clearer thing to do is look at a clearer text and get your example from that. But it's not enough to just look at this and go, I don't like the sound of that. Well, what's it saying? Women can't teach or something? I don't like that, so I'm ignoring it. It's part of our scripture. We want to understand it with integrity. We don't want to dismiss it. We don't want to pretend it's not there. And we don't want to just say, you know, it doesn't fit our culture of the day. And it's too easy without even studying to say, oh, it's just cultural. Okay, if you're studying and you know it's cultural, that's fine. Don't just make up things. Because I've heard people say that. Like, ah, it's just cultural, you can ignore it. Okay, there is a cultural issue here. There is a specific issue here. But there is a theological issue here as well. So, 
as I said, we see there were co-workers with Paul who were women and they were taught. And then the last thing, and we'll come back to this, is the religious and cultural context. It is important to understand how Paul is speaking into it. The first thing is, is there a thing called incipient Gnosticism? Um, you might see, think of this when you look at a, a letter like Colossians. And Paul arguing against this false teaching, and we don't know precisely everything about it. And what we do is we, in a sense, derive what he's arguing against by the answers he gives to it. He doesn't sort of spell it out and say, here's the bad thing, now here's my answers. He's just speaking straight to that. And you think, okay, he's making all these points, so I guess the thing he's arguing against is the opposite of those points or an erroneous version of those points. And so you're kind of trying to put it together. And so that's what we're doing here as well. Something like what's at Colossi perhaps is happening here in Ephesus, which is not very far away, by the way, from Colossi. And it's a kind of idea that often draws upon biblical imagery and has this idea that we can actually reach God in various ways by gaining more wisdom, by gaining more mystical experience, etc., and climbing a kind of ladder. Maybe Paul's dealing with something like that or something that uses the same sort of text as Gnosticism. I'll explain that when we get to that part there, but I'm just letting you know what's coming up. And then, of course, hey, you've read Acts chapter 19. Um, it's 19, is it? Not 20? Acts chapter 19, where Paul goes to... Um, uh, Ephesus and um, causes a bit of a riot and um, suddenly all the town starts to gather together and it's not like a little town, this is a big town and everyone's piling together and um, are all chanting great is Artemis of the Ephesians or Diana if you have an old King James but um, great is Artemis of the Ephesians that Ephesus um, is the centre of what you might say the Artemis religion or Artemis cult um, so this whole background of Artemis might well play something into what um, Paul's talking about here. Again, we'll test it out by looking at what Paul writes and see whether he is responding um, to something else. Okay, so... Who freaked out when they got that in their email? <laughs> okay, so what I've done here is that we've taken First Timothy uh, 2... We've all read it, and then I've given you a bunch of translations and I've highlighted a few points um, along the way just to think about, okay, why is it that they translated that uh, different here or there? Because I'll tell you, there's lots of tricks and traps along the way when you're trying to translate this particular text. Um, not everything is clear in scripture and um, as uh, Peter says at the end of either first or second Peter second Peter I think it is um, you know there's a lot of very difficult things uh, when we read uh, Paul's letters um, that we struggle with and we don't fully understand that's what it's you know a disclaimer within the Bible about another part of the Bible so okay some things are hard to understand but let's have a look at a bit at the context we're going to um, if you've got your Bible in front of you then please um, yeah, follow along. I'm going to go from the NIV for starters. Prior to this, as we just saw, 
prayer for, the, for kings and so forth, living a quiet life, peaceable life. And then we're addressing a situation with men and women within the congregation, uh, the community that gathers in Ephesus. Okay, so therefore I want, here's what Paul wants, instructions to Timothy, here's what I want. I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, which is how Jewish people pray. So you lift up their hands and we go, oh, he's about to pray. And you lift up his head, rather than the British version of, oh, don't look at me, I'm praying. Eyes. Okay, so I wouldn't mind if we actually did, did this when we pray, rather. So open yourself up to God, raise your hands, big voice, thank the Lord. Lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. What's going on? Well, clearly, what's going on firstly is that the men are not doing what they ought to be doing here as well and that somehow, I don't know exactly, time of prayer is either being used to like one-up each other or dispute or correct each other through a prayer. I've seen that happen. Um, but whatever it is, not good. And so he wants them to actually, the men, look, lift up high hands, pray without anger or disputing. Maybe it's something to do with what's going on there in the first chapter, the myths and genealogies and the babbling talk and not knowing what you're talking about. Okay. Now the women get a few more instructions here, just before it gets weird. I also want the women, plural, to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What's going on here? Um, is Paul now a, a fashion critic? Um, no. <laughs> and who are the women he's talking about? He's talking about everybody. Does he have some particular women in mind? Remember that in this setting, it's not a case of saying, stop making yourself look pretty, but rather people who, because of their wealth and their status, dress in such a way as to show their wealth and status. This is a problem back in Corinth, you might remember too. The whole question about status in the community reflected in the Lord's Supper is a big deal and it's actually antithetical to the point of the Gospel. So... Main thing is here, how, one actually, how should one actually act? Um, all right. Apologies to this comment from all you guys, even young guys. Guys don't tend to look as much about how they're dressed. Don't look for a wide variety. How many of these kind of shirts have you seen me wear to church all the time? Okay, we don't think about that sort of thing a lot. Again, this is not a just a thing talking about picking on women, but it is suggesting, I suppose, that the particular women he's addressing here are dressing in a way which is drawing attention to themselves and their status um, in a way which you might not find in the, to the same degree with men. But don't read it as a kind of a, um, a sexist put-down of, of women. Just try to look nice. It's a status thing here. It's, got, it's not a kind of a, um, yeah, a fashion critique. And then we get to the thing, which is kind of difficult, is it not? And first of all, what I want to say is that this next phrase is actually the only imperative in this whole section. 
that we're about to read. It's the only thing where Paul says, this should happen. Everything else is either descriptive with perhaps a kind of inference, but this is the only place you find an imperative, that is a kind of command, I suppose, if you want to put it that way, that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What's that about? Okay, let's look through a couple of the different translations there as well. So, full submission, NIV. The ESV is saying submissiveness. It's a little bit different. Um, full submission for the NRSV. All submission for the Lexham Net Bible, all submissiveness. The Geneva Bible, this is fun, this is 1557, and all the spelling is wrong. No. Uh, all subjection, it's not a way that we would use that word now, perhaps. Not that here, let's bring that up. There we are. And then. The King James. Again, all subjection. Got to be careful, 400-year-old English might not mean precisely the same way that we think about it uh, as well. Uh, Christian Standard Bible, full submission, and then when we get down to um, uh, the Jewish Bible, complete Jewish Bible, they want to call it just fully submitted. Let a woman learn in peace. I reckon that would be the um, go-to text of mothers, would it not? Just give me some peace to learn. Okay, so fully submitted. And then the last one, which um, is pretty keen here, this just for everyone in full submission and adds the words to God. So interpreting it there as being, this is actually a submission to God. Thinking there is that full submission is another way of talking about discipleship. That one submits to your master or it could be and I think most likely submissive submit in terms of teaching rather than learn quietly or submission to your husband. If you think it is a husband let's hear an argument for it. Don't just assume it. Do I know the answer to that? No. But what I think is that in this part, this is talking about a woman should learn. They must learn. Let the woman learn. An imperative in quietness and false submission. Not um, silence, as I said before. Um, you'll see silence there in a couple of places. Let the woman learn in silence in the King James and Geneva Bible. But as I said, same word there before. Quietness. And that says something about the attitude in Ephesus, though. If there is false teaching happening and there are people babbling and saying meaningless things and talking and asserting things they don't know about and want to be teachers of the law, etc., then rather than doing that and instead learn quietly for submission. Situation is Ephesus, remember that, okay? 
This is not saying, men, you can do what you want. You can learn, I don't know, loudly if you want, but women should learn quietly. Rather, the situation he's talking about now in addressing the women is that there is some sort of situation happening here and so the reminder is happening of this, of women who want to be teachers of some kind. Okay, so what's next? If we went back to the NIV, um, therefore I want to, no, hang on, where are we? Uh, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to, uh, he has assumed authority, we'll come back to that. I just want to say first of all is that he's not saying you must not allow women to teach. He is saying I do not permit a woman to teach. And it actually does say that too. It doesn't say women, it says a woman. And there may be significance in that. I do not permit a woman to teach. If you wanted to put it in the most clunky way possible, you could actually say so literally from the Greek, um, I am not permitting. I'm not permitting a woman to teach. How does that apply? Again, remembering his own practice, what's he talking about here? I'm not permitting a woman to teach. In speaking into the situation in Ephesus, I'm not permitting a woman to, to teach or to something over a man. And here's where it gets unusual. He's not permitting a woman. Is it generic woman? Is it a specific woman? To teach or to authentine uh, over a man. And so what we have here, this word authentine, is actually appears once in the whole New Testament. We don't find it anywhere else. And if you're trying to find out the meaning of it, you went back um, around the time, you would find around five occurrences of this word. That's how rare this word is. So it's not easy actually to determine what it means. That's not mean it's not, it's not impossible, but it's hard. And I think part of what happens here in the English is you kind of get the illusion that authority, the word, which is usually exousia, um, is kind of there and that we have this question about what do you do with exousia? Do you exercise it? Do you usurp it? What do you do? But the word authority is not in there at all. It's an interpretive add-on to whatever this word authentine is. And here's the best that we can do, I think, at the moment. It has a range of a few meanings. Some people want to say, oh, it's just a neutral word, you know, like authority. But on the far example, it's used of someone who is a murderer. I don't think he's talking about the uh, woman or wife murdering her husband or a man uh, at this point. Some of you might be thinking, no, I can imagine that. So, it could mean that. Well, I'll slide it back down the scale a little bit. It could mean something like domineering, dominating, pushing oneself on somebody else. 
um, making them comply in a way that they don't want to, compelling them to do something or to accept something that they don't want to. That's actually the dominant usage of that kind of domineering maybe, but even let's scale it back a little bit more and just say compelling somebody to act in a way that they don't want to. Pushing them. Maybe some said dictating to them in some form. Okay, well who's, let's just call it um, compelling or dictating at the moment. Who's it happening to? A woman, I don't permit, I'm not permitting. A woman to teach or dictate to a man. That seems pretty general to me. I don't like women telling men what to do. Now what we also have here is another issue. So I say this is difficult. The word here is either it's a man or it's a, uh, a husband. And the woman is either a woman or it's a wife. So in that case, in the situation in Ephesus, this question about status and so forth and false teaching, I'm not permitting a wife to teach or dictate over a man. She must be quiet, not silent, quiet. In this situation, remember, think about this in coherence with the rest of what we read in the New Testament. Women are praying, women are prophesying, women are teaching, women are exhorting, women are encouraging. Go through Romans 12, all the gifts are there for all the members of the body of Christ. And so we have different uh, gifts. There's no indication in Romans 12, for instance, that the one who, to, who has the gift of teaching to teach. Brackets. As we know, they'll all be men. No, there's nothing like that at all. This is talking to all the body of Christ for all the different gifts to do them, pursue it. What's teaching? This is where... Oh, my goodness, I want another problem? Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Now, the word itself is fairly normal. And there are two possible concerns here. See how I said possible? Because you've just got to sometimes say, we're not 100% sure. Here's two of the things that it is most likely. And whether or not there could be both, again, not 100% sure, maybe... The first thing is, and this is important in the context of false teaching, is it not, is that this is before... We don't have a New Testament, really, at this point, remember? You have the Scriptures of Israel. You might, if you're lucky, maybe have a couple of Paul's letters. Um, we're probably still waiting on the Gospels. So keeping the tradition alive of the stories of Jesus and so forth and telling them well is an important deal. And so teaching is pass, helping pass on that tradition. Okay. It's not something, you know, it's not like we're in the situation where you just say, just get up and tell us what you think. What's your viewpoint? How interesting. Isn't that great? Over the next couple of centuries of the church, there's a whole lot of different people saying a whole lot of different stuff um, that if it was just a like, interesting viewpoint, yeah, someone else now get up and tell us how you think Jesus actually isn't God or that um, he is God and actually isn't really a human being or something like that. Um, some 
heretical idea. Yes, heresy is a thing. False teaching is a thing. So it's a big deal about what is being taught in the New Testament churches. And in this setting, false teaching, he's saying possibly, not allowing, not permitting a woman to teach. An individual woman being singled out or in this situation, this is, I'm not permitting at the moment, this is, we're calling it uh, quits on here um, while we sort this out. Rather than, for all time, Timothy, I know you already know this because you're my son in the faith, but I'm going to say it here mysteriously in a letter to you anyway, that women can never, ever, ever teach. That doesn't make sense of why it's in the letter. So, that's the first possibility of teaching. Second possibility, as you know, as you go through the New Testament, is actually it's not just about ideas, if you like, concepts, um, doctrinal theology in terms of like Christology or the um, thing about the Trinity or something like that. No, it's also a question about how one lives one's life. And so the idea of teaching, as you look through these letters to Timothy and to Titus, has a very strong practical dimension to it as well. How does the body of Christ comport itself in the midst of a very confusing first century world, having been brought up in different way of seeing things, how do we actually live together properly? What's it mean to be part of the household of faith, as Paul will talk about it? Um, so teaching is also instructing people how they should actually live together. So if we're actually in a situation where this is all exploded and there are people asserting all sorts of different things, well, um, yeah, it might be time to say, here, in Ephesus, at this time, some of the women who may well be causing the problem, particular women, explain who they might be, uh, no, we don't want them teaching. We don't want them overturning everything. We don't want them teaching and, because it's a combined idea, teaching and asserting, uh, domineering, dictating over their uh, husband. Instead, remain quiet and learn and do it quietly with submissiveness to the received teaching. I'll come back to the um, question about who it actually is. But the very next thing that Paul says is a warrant, it's a justification of some kind for what he just said. So I'm going to ask you to be bold and I'll, I'm happy to stand here in awkward silence. Um, if, so, if someone says to you, a biblical perspective is that a woman cannot teach and has to remain quiet because Adam was formed first and then Eve. Who's convinced by that? I just remember, I'm not going up against the Bible here, I'm just saying... In terms of interpreting it, in terms of thinking about the words, in terms of what's going on, trying to understand the argument, can you see a good argument there? Women shouldn't teach because Adam was made first. I mean, okay, just think for a moment. Either 
there's something to do with the fact that Adam is made first that makes this uh, essential. The other side of it might be, well, look, whatever you think of Adam and Eve, that's all in the past. And so we're all here together now. So the fact that back then a man was formed before a woman doesn't really make any sense of what happens between all of us. Unless there is something about a sexual gender hierarchy somehow to do with the fact that man was first, woman was second. So you've got to try to work out what, what the argument actually uh, is there. Was that a comment or are you teaching, Miriam? Just want to make sure because if, if it's a comment, that was okay. But if we suddenly say that's teaching, it's apparently not okay. Um, I promise not to learn anything from it so that way it's not teaching. That's right. That goes back to that argument. Doesn't it? That basically, what's the big picture here? What's the Rather than just zeroing in on the words. But we're still going to make sense of what's happening here in the words. I'm actually not asking you to have a discussion on it quite yet, but I might in a moment. What... What do we see here? We see that the woman is to learn in science full submission, whoever this person is. But Paul is not permitting this person to, or people, to teach or have authority over their probably husband, and that they are to keep quiet in that learning. And then we have this refutation, and this is partly where we get to the whole issue of what's going on in Ephesus because yeah it's not particularly persuasive as is as a kind of talking now about the order of creation which is sometimes the way that people talk about it since you talk in those terms you've made it sound like something much more clear and important than what actually you have written here all he's saying Adam was formed first okay so this is kind of where you say here's what he said what's he refuting So, and where does that come from, we wonder? So, what we have is a possible, if there's an issue of some kind of Gnosticism and a delving into the stories of Adam and Eve, which is very much happens at the time uh, preceding uh, the early church and during the early church, a lot of writings start speculating about the nature of Adam and Eve. And then a whole lot of documents as well about Adam, Adam and Eve and that too. It may well be that what's happening here is that part of this false teaching, the myths and genealogies and such like that, is some kind of imagining that women have some kind of special insight and they have a kind of priority over men. It can also be perhaps rooted in the idea of the Artemis of the Ephesians because in the Artemis of the Ephesians, who's daughter of Zeus, her mother gives birth um, to... Um, 
Artemis and her twin brother, Apollo. Ever thought you've had a bad uh, birth? Artemis comes out first and then her twin comes out nine days later. So, Artemis is first and then there's also Apollo. And that's a kind of a mythology then of, about origins. It's obviously different to what's happening with Adam and Eve. But there's a kind of a thought world that's here where you have this idea that maybe women uh, basically have the priority. Of course, we all know, don't we, that everybody comes out of a woman, without exception. So women have the priority. And this is somehow perhaps being read into the significance uh, from the creation story. Paul's thing, well, look, Adam was made first, then Eve. It doesn't have to be a kind of I'm setting up the order of creation here as a, a correction about the creation story. Almost a kind of dismissive one, you might say. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so now we're thinking, do women have a great spiritual insight here that is not available to men? Which might be the thing that's been, one of the things that's been argued here in Ephesus, part of the false teaching. Paul's response? Well, Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, in, in effect, probably what you have is a, is a off-the-cuff, almost, but serious, but dismissive refutation of part of what the false teaching might be. Like all the New Testament letters, this is often what we're doing. We're seeing what's said, we don't know the full context, and then we're inferring backwards what might they be arguing against because we don't have the actual thing they're saying that they're arguing against. Sometimes you do, like in Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians, and then people think that it's actually Paul, uh, Paul's own statement when he states something that the Corinthians wrote to him and then he replies and then some people read it as if like, um, no, the whole thing is actually Paul talking. Trap for young players. All right, so I'm not permitting a woman to teach in that significant way that we're talking about or to dominate, dictate this man. Instead, they must be quiet. Why? Look, Adam was formed first than Eve. Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Note that that doesn't make Adam particularly helpful there either. Adam's also a transgressor. It's not like, as some people have said, well, women are more prone to error and to sin and to leading people astray. I mean, remembering that we're talking about Adam right here. Adam is actually the one who wasn't deceived and sinned, and Eve was deceived and sinned. So, um, you want to be pretty careful about that kind of commentary which is actually just trying to justify a particular reading it's not particularly persuasive I don't think any women here in the 21st century were on to say yeah I'm not smart I can't understand the Bible I need my husband to tell me it's 
Because watch yourself, because if you follow a particular way of reading it, that's kind of the direction you're going. And there's a lot of people that hold to that and don't want to go to that conclusion. And my goodness, I've had to like, read through a bunch of it this week. And it's pretty... Ugh. A lot of dodging around trying to make... Uh, trying to say, yes, yes, we believe what the Bible says. The reading interpretation of a difficult text. And no, we're not sexist. It's very difficult for everybody reading this sex. Okay, so Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, became a transgressor. This is part of his justification for thinking about what he's addressing here in Ephesus. Let's talk for a moment about the weird part that comes next. And again, maybe there's a clue in the background. Good news, everyone. Woman has even become a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Awesome. Uh, for us guys, uh, we're saved by grace through faith. Um, but for you, you are saved through grace through faith and childbearing. All right. And look, this is a tough one. What's saved here as well? Most... Often, everywhere, it'll be either um, rescue or deliverance in terms of ultimate salvation, or it could be something that happens in history. And here, what could it be? Is he saying that somehow that um, she, in this case, will say a Christian woman, will be saved in her childbearing, that basically she will come through it? Because this is the first century, and Caesarians are 1,500 years away. Um, how many people had maybe two wives because what, their wife died earlier giving birth to one of their children um, it's a scary thing is it not she'll be saved through childbearing she'll come through it okay if they what sorry she they okay Continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A little bit scary there because that would then, if we went with that interpretation, would imply that actually if you don't come through childbearing, maybe it's because you didn't continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. That sounds a bit off. I don't think Paul would be saying that. Could be saying, and this sounds very theological and exciting, maybe we say through the childbearing. Mary giving birth to Jesus. Think back to Genesis, um, maybe a messianic reading. Remember talking to um, Eve that God says that um, her offspring, um, serpent's offspring will bite the heel of, the, of her offspring and um, her offspring will crush the head of the serpent's offspring, etc. Um, so maybe it's a messianic kind of promise of some kind. She will be saved through... The childbearing, something that's never said anywhere else. Um, and it doesn't mean Paul can't say it, but very odd way um, to say it. Some people think it might be this, but that's a pretty minority view. All right, so what then? Is it simply, again, countering something else that's going on here in Ephesus? Possibly. 
as we see later in Timothy, there's a couple of different things that false teachings is happening. Stuff about what you can eat, which comes up a lot. So people basically taking the Old Testament and, and trying to be very wise and uh, spiritually insightful and saying that people can't eat certain things as well if you want to be properly spiritual. Also, you need to be... Kids, what's that over there? It's abstaining from sex. And so marital relations, therefore, are not um, normal, we'll say. The whole household thing is being mixed up if you look at the uh, chapter 4 of Timothy. So maybe this is talking about that, that actually, as a woman, it's fine for you to engage in the normal practice of being a wife in the first century with everybody else, to engage in having and raising children and continuing in faith and so forth with that as part of it as well. But to show propriety or self-control. Or modesty. Not in terms of a sexual thing, but actually in that status thing that we talked about before. So which one is it? Let's vote and then we can see, what a, see which one is right. We don't know. I think it's the latter one. Okay, so now let's go back to the mysterious... Um, oh, no, sorry. I've, I've left something important out. If you're thinking about Artemis of the Ephesians, in that case, Artemis of the Ephesians, daughter of Apollo, was a virgin. And she was a hunter. And one of the things that Artemis would do, so we are told by her cult, is that for a woman giving birth, giving birth, she would have pity on them because her own mother had to endure nine days with her twin brother Apollo. And so they said that either she would show mercy and she would bring the person through or she was show a different kind of mercy and she was one who carried the bows and arrows and whatnot and she would give you a quick death. So, hey, great as uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, she will either get you through childbirth or she will give you a quick death in childbirth. She won't drag it out. That might make sense of what's going on here. Maybe in Ephesus in terms of what's being taught here, what's being said. She will be saved through childbearing. That would actually bring the other option in there, which is a very daring thing for Paul to say in that case. Um, is he making a claim in terms of a spiritual battle here between the sort of the, the demonic claims of, of Artemis' cult or... Jesus actually providing people in this situation to come through. There's a lot that's written about all of this, like I say. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not easy to understand. So, let us finish now because it's 12 o'clock. Where have we come to? I'll give you another translation. 
This is from uh, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. I think he's getting close here. Have a look at this. Let a wife, so we're identifying the woman as a wife. Learn in quietude, in all orderly compliance, so that's the idea of submission. I entrust it to a wife neither to teach nor to wield authority, so that's how he's thinking about dictating or dominating, but to abide in quietude. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, rather the woman being deceived came to be transgression. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they abide with temperance and faith and love and holiness. And so that's partly why I think it's quite likely that we're talking about wife and husband for starters, not just men and women. It's about usurping a kind of authority and dominating um, a man, which is something kind of an issue in Ephesus in terms of the Artemis cult, etc., that women set themselves. Also, a movement in Rome called the New Women as well, doing something similar for different reasons, greater social status and freedom. But whatever that context is, Paul is saying this is a problem right now in Ephesus and I am not permitting a woman or a wife, say, to teach. Last possibility? It's talking about a woman. A little bit like Paul does in Corinthians where he talks about a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. When he talks about the same person again in 2 Corinthians, again, it's a man. Everyone knows who it is, but they're not naming them. And here, it may well be but what's happening. Here's the broad thing. I want all the women, I want all the men to be doing this. Stop fighting and arguing and just would you pray properly in public? Women, stop dressing according to your status and so forth, asserting yourself, and also learn and submission. And the next thing, I don't allow a woman, brackets, you know who I'm talking about, to teach or domineer over her husband because and then a refutation of the thing that she may well be saying. That's basically where I come out on it. And you might say, oh, just tell us what the Bible says. Well, I just told you a variety of different things the Bible might be saying, because it's hard. But what I do want to emphasise here is that this in no way gives us confidence on the basis of Paul's own practice, in terms of the coherence of the letter, in terms of the coherence of the rest of what Paul has done and practiced and written, to just say, I'm jumping straight to this text and the answer is this. If you can explain what's going on here um, and give an argument as to why Paul has perhaps changed his mind or is making a prohibition that somehow, for some reason, goes beyond this particular situation, we're all ears. Um, just saying Adam and Eve and then quickly making that sound, bloating it out to kind of, it's the creational order. Um, well, creation, new creation. Things may well have changed. We're not just living uh, under 
created order, we're living under a new creation. We're living under a new covenant. So you can't just assume that. In order to quote this, in order to say this is what um, this prohibition is universal, it's for everybody, you need to be able to explain it. And still, for reading all the scholarly writing and the books and the arguments that are happening, that case has not been made. It's more assumed. So let's pray now. Thank God for his word, or the parts either side of this text. Know this part as well. And let's thank God for the ministries of women in times past, the early church, through history, and today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, as I said, for your word. We thank you that you have spoken in times past and ultimately through your son, as it says in Hebrews. And we listen to the wisdom and the instruction of, of the Apostle Paul. And we do not dismiss it, but we want to understand it. It's difficult to understand the background and some of the arguments that he may be saying. He knew what he was talking about, and Timothy knew what he was talking about. And maybe we know precisely what he's talking about, but we're not sure. Help us to be wise and not to weaponize this text against others. Help us to come together in prayer, lifting up holy hands. Let's come together, forgetting our social status, coming together, together, together to learn in full submission, male and female. And we ask as well that you would continue to empower your people, male and female, in prayer, in prophecy, in teaching, in ministry, in encouragement, all the different gifts that you have given all of us, male and female. We ask for your ongoing guidance and help in Jesus' name. Amen.